Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part three of the story of Jeremy and Zachary Kane and Mark Harper, all sentenced to 35 years in prison for the murder of a man named Jimmy Hill. Jeremy and Zach are still incarcerated for this crime, and Mark Harper was released from prison after serving three years of his sentence. It's a crime they all say was self-defence against a grown man who was assaulting Mark Harper after a confrontation that went south very quickly. When I first began researching this story and talking with everyone involved, I thought the mere fact of having so many people there that day speaking with me about the incident, it would make it easier to piece together the events of that day and beyond. But I'm simply a fool. It has instead become more like putting together a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle without the pretty picture on the front of the box. In this story, we have three boys who were all involved in an incident and essentially are all giving me pretty similar accounts of what happened and the events that took place afterwards. In this case, there are of course slight differences, but the main aspects of what happened are all the same. However, there is one detail that is a little less than a slight difference. Zach would tell me that on the day at that Burger King just before this event took place that they decided to head to the batting cages as Mark had a softball game coming up and he wanted to get in some practice. Jeremy says the same. However, Mark says that although this is probably the case he can't 100% remember, he says that he and Zach had agreed that they'd go and see if they could track down Greg the 19-year-old that Mark had been having issues with, who was the stepson of the man that would lose his life that day. So your plan was to sort of get a bit of payback from this great guy for what had happened the sort of previous night? Uh, yeah. And I was going to have me and Zach, like, like, tune him up like they did me. Yeah. He like, like, not with no bath, though. So, of course, I had to ask Zach about this obvious difference in the story. I was talking to Mark, obviously, about this story. You know, all of your, everything you see, your brother, you, Mark, essentially you guys are all saying the same thing. The only difference is, from Mark's account of what's happened, is that at Burger King, Mark suggests that he, he and you had a conversation about getting back at Greg for him beating him up the night before. No. Why would I find Greg? Greg didn't do nothing to me. <laughs> so why would I be saying that? You sort of saying like, I don't have no problem with these people. He was the reason. He was the reason all of it started. He's the reason it happened. Now, if somebody tried to jump on him, yeah, I would involve myself. But as far as just saying I need to find him, I don't need to find him. To me, I really wish it wouldn't have happened. I really wish he wouldn't have been so mad about it. Feel like he's got something to prove. And I would also bring up this discrepancy with Jeremy. Just a word of warning, his phone line wasn't great the day we caught up. 
you know, I've spoken to Mark now. So Mark and I have had a had a long discussion about uh, about everything, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, everything from his point of view. The only different thing he told me, mm-hmm. Mark is suggesting that on that at at that Burger King, um, he and Zach were discussing the fact that Mark wanted to get back at this Greg guy for beating him up the night before. Um, and that they had yeah. al- had already agreed that, that 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 day that they were going to attempt to try and find him in order for a bit of payback, mm-hmm. which is obviously slightly different to to Zach's accounts of, of where he uh, you know he said it was purely they were just going off to batting practice for baseball. Yeah. Um, and he did say to me, look, I, I could have said something about the batting practice. Um, that definitely could have been one thing I said. But he said that he he and Zach definitely uh, had a conversation about finding this Greg guy. Yeah, I'd see, that was something I wasn't um, I wasn't privy to that. If they were talk, discussing that, oh, yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. But I, I know they weren't going looking for the for the man that died. No, no, um, of course not. No, you know, they had nothing to do with it. I knew it was something to do with baseball practice, but I thought, yeah. Um, but I really didn't know what they were doing. I was just more or less following them, trying to keep them from going back to this girl's house. Yeah, and that was that was it. Yeah. Um, you know, and Mark, he, he didn't even, he wasn't even aware of that. He didn't know why I was even there. Um, and that's the only reason I was there. What has also become apparent after speaking with all of the boys is that the relationship between Zach and Mark has broken down over the years. And in fact, the two haven't spoken for some time. Zach tells me that some time ago, he would see a Facebook post made by Mark and express his disappointment at its content. I had just like went off on Mark about six months ago on Facebook. That's when I was at another facility and I had a phone. Okay. He's on Facebook crying about his life and how hard he's got it and how he had to go through a struggle and he had to do prison time and all this stuff. I'm just sitting here reading this stuff. So I just went off on him. I said, prison time. I said, really, Mark? He didn't know I was looking at his page. So I said, really, Mark? I said, you did prison time. You did three years. I've done 22 years. And I said, you're sitting there crying? Tell me your life hard. You got a wife that takes care of everything. You got new cars. You got a new house. You got kids. You're married. And you don't even have to work? And you're saying your life's hard? I snapped on him. I couldn't, I couldn't take that. You're going to sit there and cry about something? I'm in prison because of you? It's understandable for what you guys have gone through that there's obviously going to be some frustration and potentially some resentment towards Mark, possibly? I mean, I, I hold resentment not because of whatever happened. I hold resentment because it happened because of you. I was there trying to defend you. I had to do what I did and defend my brother, and you put us in that position because you were having problems with your family. And then you turn your back on me when you get out. As cases go that we've covered on One Minute Remaining, I think this case will definitely be one that will create a lot of discussion and a lot of difference in opinions. Because it's not like our other stories. It's not really a whodunit. It's a story from three boys about what happened that day. So the question then becomes, who is ultimately in the wrong here? Of course, the boys do bear responsibility from that day. Mark jumps out of his car when he could have just driven away. He grabs a bat when he could have just got back in his car. Zach also has a bat when he could have said to Mark, let's go. It's one I've been thinking about for a while. 
In fact, at 2am one morning, when I couldn't get back to sleep, I started playing the scenario over in my own head. On one hand, you have a 40-year-old man and four teenage boys from the ages of 15 to 16. Some might say, why didn't Jimmy Hill tell them where to go? Why did he go after them? Why didn't he walk back in his house? Maybe even call the police, which we know he's done in the past. Why did he spit in the face of Mark Harper and allegedly lick him in the mouth? Definitely all odd behaviour. However, of course, on the other hand, it could seem clear-cut. Some young teenage boys appear to be looking for a fight, and they bite off more than they can chew. And in an attempt to protect themselves, would accidentally kill a man. Many would say, well, you make your bed, you lie in it. Why did those boys confront a grown man? And why didn't they just get in their cars and leave? You know, I, I've talked to Mark, you know, I asked him, like, what was he thinking? Why, you know, he wasn't, from my understanding, didn't think that this grown man was going to come off this road and, and do this to him. You know, I think he thought, you know, he was just going to, you know, where's your son at? You know, he was trying to, you know, two kids trying to fight, basically. Yeah. You know, it wasn't nothing to do with the grown man. It never, I mean, I have no doubt it Correct. never intended to end the way it did, of course. No one wants to kill anyone. So, right, at you know, all. Yeah, and that's the thing. People will look at this and go, well, you guys were the aggressors and, you know, you had your baseball bats, you could have left them in the car, you could have just driven away. Did you ever think about just getting in your cars and leaving? That, that kind of resorts back to me being competitive. I've never really, like, really been scared of anything and that was kind of like the first time that I've ever been like, scared. You know, I'm, I'm on all that psychotic medication at the same time, so I can't really have good discernment, you know what I mean? And I didn't make the right decision, definitely, on yeah. multiple things. Hindsight, of course, is a wonderful thing. And I've said many times over in the past, we all make stupid mistakes, especially when we're young. And as the old saying goes, let he without sin cast the first stone. With all that being said, we are where we are. And at this point, Mr Hill is on the ground and in a very bad way. And the boys take off in their cars. However, they don't run and hide. They would all let their parents know exactly what had just happened. Mark and Zach leave together and head to Mark's house, while Jeremy and his friend, who we will discuss more soon, head to another friend's before Jeremy calls his mum. We get in the cars, we run off, we leave. My brother and his friend went to their to my brother's friend's house, and then me and my friend went to a friend of mine's house. Nobody was home. We left there and went to the friend of mine that was at work that called me and got me to go ride around with these two knuckleheads and got me in trouble. And I went over there to tell him he worked at a hardware store with Julian's Hardware. And I said, we pulled up and I was talking to him. I said, man, you won't believe this crap just happened. This man just went crazy. He just attacked us. At this time, we had no idea the man was that seriously injured. We didn't know he was going to die. Didn't know he was that hurt. You know, all we knew was we got the hell out of there. Obviously, you left with Mark. You guys left together. Where, where did you? What did you guys do directly after what had happened? Where, where did he drive to? Uh, his house. Uh, I called my mama, and she was at my grandparents' house. I think. I think yeah, because my grandmama came with, us and uh, told her what had happened, and they met us there, and then we went straight to the police station. Right. A police car showed up over there. We was already headed to the police station anyway. As Zach says, a police car, in fact, would turn up at Mark's home, even before the boys had gone to the police station. The police, when they showed up at my house, they wanted me to go with them. 
my dad was like, can I please take him to the police station? And they were like, all right, that's fine. We'll follow you. Get in my car, because they told me to take my car and you know, drive to the police station. This would be due to the responding officer recognising the description of the cars. This is taken from Officer Maddox's police report. From past calls I have handled involving the victim and the description of the vehicles, I felt that the two subjects involved were, number one, Mark Harper. I know he drives a green Chevrolet Camaro and has had past encounters with the victim that the police were involved in. Number two, Zach Kane. A yellow Ford pickup truck is owned by a member of his family, and I have seen him hang out with Mark Harper many times. I placed these two subjects' names over the police radio as possible suspects. The boys would, of course, make their own way voluntarily to the station, which again, Officer Maddox notes in his report. I call my mom, and then we go to the police station to tell them the man attacked us. Well, when we get there, the police said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, basically, I, I, I mean, I'm still in shock. I'm just sitting there. I'm not talking to anybody. My parents are doing the talking. And the police chief was like, you know, told us, well, y'all just wait here for a minute. Y'all probably can just go home. The man had no business, you know, messing with y'all. He stays, he's got, you know, stays in trouble. You know, just no big deal. Like, when we went to the police station, they weren't even going to arrest us at first. At first, they weren't even going to arrest us, but then some other cop that was there that came out, he was there, or he just got there, and he came from Birmingham or something, said, no, y'all got to place them under arrest. So at first, they told us to go home until they get everything sorted out. And then they turned around and said, no, we got to arrest you, because this guy said they had to arrest us, this other cop. They knew, the, 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 the police knew. They did not want to arrest us. They knew that guy. They've had a deal with that guy. So the police chief came up there and said, look, we don't want to do this. We don't have any choice. We've got to place you under arrest for attempted murder. They said, what? Did you ever have any sort of interrogations or any sit-downs with, the, with detectives investigating this case? No, actually, you know, like, like I said, they were on all the stuff I see on TV of interrogating the people and stuff. You know, the police, the police from Pleasant Grove, they knew the man and his history, and they did not want to arrest us. Um, they did not think we should be arrested. Um, and they just like, do not talk to us. Do not talk to anyone. You know, get your lawyer and get out of here. Make bond and let your lawyers deal with it. But they never even tried to talk to us. Right. So that's kind of, kind of surprising from where most people I've talked to, the way it goes is usually different. Yeah, I mean, usually yeah, the police want to get you in a room straight away and, and try and start, you know, interrogating or questioning you over what happened. And Although I still still find it strange. I mean, that, that side of the thing, I suppose, is good from their part to say, hey, don't talk to us, get a lawyer, all the rest of it. But then at some point, surely you would sit down with your lawyer and someone investigating so they could say, okay, so what happened? Talk us through what happened. That didn't happen? No, no. We never, I've never given a statement as to what happened ever, really, until now. Um. I mean, other than to lawyers, never actually told anyone what happened. Even when we went to court, because I was supposed to testify, they didn't let me testify. Um, so nobody actually, none of us actually got to tell our side of the story at all. That's That just seems so weird so, to me, because, I mean, none of you told the story, and then obviously the guy that was involved, he ends up passing away, so he's not telling the story. So I'm assuming you're relaying the story right. to the, the lawyers, and then uh, I guess they're relaying the story back to police, maybe? I mean, from I mean, they shouldn't have told the police really anything. You know, they're not. I mean, there was really, from my understanding, there was really no communication. I know reporters and stuff. You know, they tried to talk to us some, and then, you know, but you know, our lawyers are just like, don't talk, don't say nothing. We'll deal with it. So that's what I did. What I was told. You know, I was a kid. I just did what I thought. You know, I was being told, and what they you know thought was right. Where we messed up is 
not saying anything at the police station. See, my mama called a friend that has a lawyer that's a friend, and he wasn't a criminal lawyer, but he did say, don't nobody say anything. Don't say nothing. So now, not saying nothing made it to where the other co-defendant, Chris Stano, could be influenced by the uh, DA. They arrested um, me, my brother, and Mark, and Chris was still not there. I had dropped him off at his house. After they arrested us, his, his mom and dad were out of town. So... They placed us under arrest for attempted murder, and we stayed in the Pleasant Grove City Jail overnight, and the next morning they took us to county. Chris Stano was, as we have already heard, a friend of Jeremy's at the time, and much like Jeremy, an innocent bystander in this incident. He, in fact, at the time, was really the most sensible of the three, as he didn't even get out of the truck. So he had the least to do with this out of everyone. In saying that, though, the police were told by the neighbour whose wife made the 911 call that there was another boy in the truck. So the police still, of course, want to speak with Chris about what had happened. However, he was nowhere to be seen. Here's the boy's father, Steve Kane. Jeremy and Zachary Mark stayed in jail. After the incident, uh, Chris never went to the police department. He called me after we went to the police department and everything. We couldn't get our kids that day. We were all at the house, my, me, my wife, my brother-in-law, and aunts and uncles and cousins and whatever else, a house full of people. Well, Chris calls me. He says, Mr. Kane. I said, Chris, where are you at? He says, I'm riding around with my girlfriend. I said, well, get her to bring you over to my house. I want to know what happened. So she brings him over to my house and drops him off. Well, when he comes through the front door, he almost run all the way out the back door. He's just ecstatic you know he can't he is upset that i finally got him calmed down enough to sit in a chair and tell me what happened he said mr kane he said he said mr hill tried to kill us i said wait a minute slow down chris slow down i said what happened he said i was riding with jeremy and we were going over to jesse keaton's house i think is what he said he said we're going following mark over to, to, to get somebody to go to baseball practice i said okay what happened he said well next thing i know mark slams on the brakes i said okay what happened then? He said, well, I look, I looking around and see what he's stopping for. He said, and next thing you know, you look in the rear view mirror. He said, I looked out the back window and I see Jimmy Hill coming down the road. And he said, he's got a big landscaping timber in, in his hand. Well, Mark steps out of his car. Now, this is what he told me. I'm not telling you anything. I knew this the day it happened. Mark stepped out of his car and got reached in the back window and got a bat and starts walking. Jeremy's behind him in his pickup truck. Okay. Mark got a bat, walks right in the middle of the road, right there by the truck. Zach gets out of the car. He's with Mark. That's my youngest son. He gets out of the car, and he gets a bat and walks out there and stands behind Mark. Well, Jimmy Hill walks right up to that boy and grabs him by the nap of the neck and spits in his face and slings him to the ground. Well, Jeremy still stepped out of the truck then, and I think he threatened to sodomize him and all kind of filthy stuff that he said during that time. And then he swung at Jeremy and missed him. So Chris Stano would eventually end up at the police station and also be placed under arrest for this crime. But more on that in a minute. Where did you find out that this person had died? Uh, Honestly, I I don't remember exactly. I want to say that because this happened on a Saturday... I think we went to see lawyers maybe Monday. It might have been Sunday. But we went to see the lawyer, and I want to say that the 
the lawyers, maybe the police department contacted the lawyers, or maybe they contacted my parents. I'm not really sure. Yeah. But I remember the lawyer telling us not to turn ourselves in. I think it was the next evening. So they said, wait until the next morning. We need to go stay somewhere else away from our home because the police are going to come to our home looking for us. And we'll turn ourselves in the next morning. So that way we don't have to spend another night in jail. Right. We don't have to go to the jail and get fingerprinted and rebooked in. And then, then they would... uh give us a hearing hopefully that day the lawyers could get it scheduled that day and then get us another bond and get us out so that's exactly what happens the following day the boys would all turn themselves into the police station to face these new charges we'll turn myself in my brother was still in juvenile and then mark turned himself in chris turned himself in and we had you know lawyers and we uh we had a bond hearing and they gave us another bond a higher bond and they gave us ankle monitors and then we were released again. And we stayed on bond for about 11 months. As Jeremy states, by this stage, all of the boys had attorneys. However, Mr Kane says things began to seem strange to him when it came to Chris Stanos, the boy who remained in the truck that day. Now, when Mr Kane refers to the boy, he is talking about Chris Stano. It's real funny. OK, when this all happened, they're all upset, right? I go down to the we bail them out. The boy comes out, he's ecstatic and everything. The first time they go to jail, you know, then the man passed away. He didn't pass away the very first day. Okay, then the next time I go to jail, they're still, my kids are still upset and everything. We'll bail them out again. And uh, that boy, that, he comes out like calm as a cucumber, not upset about nothing, nothing. He said, uh, where's my lawyer? And I said, well, he, he's not here, Chris. I'll take you, you know, down there to him. And he just acts like nothing's wrong then. From then on out, I knew something was up. That was that was very early on in the case, but I didn't know what was up. He already knew he was never going to go to jail. The grocery store's lawyer, he is actually on probably retainer for Hills Food Center, was the boy that testified against my kids as lawyer during the, at the trial. So I find this whole this whole situation interesting where there was never any chatting to you guys about what actually had happened. So I just don't understand how they can build a, a picture of what actually went down if they're not asking you what happened. The one kid that was in the truck with me, Chris Stano, they, um, when all this happened, he had, a, you know, his lawyers, me, my brother, and Mark, his friend, and our families all was trying to work together. And our lawyers and stuff were trying to work together so that we could all go to court together and and, and, and plead our side. Well, he separated himself from us, and his lawyer he had was also the same lawyers that the the guy that died's family used on on multiple other occasions. So it's weird. He was talking to them, and they were relaying information to that family, and he was working with the with his lawyers and the and the DA's office and that stuff. So they were getting what happened through him. But he wasn't per se a lawyer on record, but he was there. And he was always, and that, that boy always had meetings in his office. He refused himself from being his lawyer, but he he appointed him another lawyer. And I got I went to another lawyer and talked to him and actually got him on tape saying, well, that lawyer he appointed ain't nothing but his pawn. He'll do whatever he tells him. So, you know, he just basically hired a lawyer to get, keep that kid under his thumb. As Mr. Kane mentions, Chris Stano would eventually take the stand against the three boys and become the prosecution's second major witness. What were your parents saying to you th- th- uh, during this whole entire period? 
mean, I mean, they were, you know, kind of in shock also. We never had any dealings with, with the legal system before, so we didn't know what to do, you know, what lawyers to hire. We had to go off, they had to go off recommendations. And as far as me, you know, I mean, I was 16, you know, but I don't, it was kind of like a blur. Like, it really wasn't real. Like, what's going on wasn't actually happening, if that makes sense. Like, I was like, there's no way I'm going to jail. I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything. Like, I defended myself. I don't, I, I know, I, I was always told to defend yourself. I didn't, you know, think I did anything wrong. And, it, you know, it's kind of like it wasn't happening. Like, I was just, just ain't real. Yeah. Kind of situation until it, you know, then the next thing you know, I'm in prison and it is real and I'm confused. So, and it was about 45 days later before they adjudicated my brother and certified him as an adult. And, he made bond. Right. When you were put into to jail, did you do a night or so in jail? Yes, one night. Um, well, I did one night in Southern Grove City Jail. And was that, I'm assuming they put you in as some sort of section for younger kids, not, not around the actual adults? No, they didn't do that. They put us right around the adults. I mean, that must have been terrifying. Oh, yeah, very much so. Seeing as how we were charged with a violent charge, we were also in the in the part of the jail, which they had multiple floors, and, and each floor was for different types of charges. So us being charged with murder, or attempted murder, and then murder, we were in the, the, the part of the jail that was for, you know, murder, rapes, robberies, all that stuff, the, the worst crimes. And they're all telling us, you know, get raped in prison, this and that, this and that, this and that. Well, the Birmingham County Jail is 9 floors high, uh, and sent me up there. And I think I did like two weeks until we bonded out for like a hundred thousand dollars. You know, from that point, my dad had contacted. I didn't know at the time we had a family DUI lawyer, and he come and he's like, oh, "I can't represent this." And he showed us you know, where to go, and I picked a lawyer, so-called best lawyer in Alabama, uh, on murder cases. Just for him to look at my case was fifty thousand dollars, you know. Because obviously, you, you know, as you said, you, you'd never been in trouble with the police before. You, you were doing well in school, and now all of a sudden, you're on an attempted murder charge, and you're in jail with adults who could have done all sorts of horrendous things. Yes, definitely. It was it was um it was very scary. Um, but uh, I lived through it. It's, I mean, the stuff I've lived through these last twenty two years is horrible. So the boys are bailed on strict bail conditions with ankle monitors and curfews. It would be almost one year before the boys would end up going to trial. So what was happening in that 11 months with you? Was you, Were you just trying to go about your life as normal? Or, I mean, I'm sure it would have been very hard just sitting on a murder charge. I mean, right. I mean, semi-normal, I guess. I mean, we had the ankle monitor. I could only leave the house at certain times during the day. Um, from seven to five, I believe it was, and I had to be back in the house by five o'clock. Um, so I had to go do drug testing once or twice or three times a month. They had like a color code system I had to call, uh, and whatever my color came up, I had to go do a urine test. Um, but other than that, that was about it. Um, uh, I think they sent me like a psych- psychiatrist or something to get like an anger management thing and psychological analysis and they basically you know said they didn't see i had any anger issues or anything wrong so they didn't need to see me anymore i went like i think two times for that but other than that yeah just try to live a you know semi-normal life couldn't go to school anymore couldn't couldn't really do anything i mean i stayed home most of the time with go fishing some with my family or 
whatever, um, church. Uh, that was about all I did. Um, friends would come over, you know, I had a basketball goal. We played basketball. I had a pool table. We might shoot some pool, play some video games. You know, I, had, I had a good bit of friends. So they was always, you know, coming over pretty much every day, hanging out and stuff. Um, so did you, were you of the opinion that you were going to be fine and this would all get sorted at trial and you'd be not found not guilty or were you sitting there thinking that you may end up in prison? No, I mean, I had no, no thought that I'd ever go to prison. I thought it would all be situated in trial. I wasn't going to go to prison, that I, everything would be fine. Especially when the kid that was in my truck, you know, I found out that he was getting probation and I thought I would get probation. You know, I thought I would get something like that. I had no idea. No, I, I had no clue I was ever going to go to prison. What, what was going on with you during that sort of period of time? Uh, I was stuck in the house. I couldn't leave. They'd let them go out, but for some reason they wouldn't let me. They said... They tried to make it seem like I was the head guy on the whole. I'm, I'm the youngest kid. I'm the youngest person here. Like, I'm the youngest person in the group, and I'm the head guy. Like, pretty much just stayed at the house all the time. I didn't really do nothing. Sit around, play football in the front yard, or we go, go, go to the mall during the day and then come back. I mean, it's pretty much nothing. How was your mental state during that period of time? I mean, I was depressed, but I, I really didn't know what depression was at the time. And. I mean, I was down every day. You know, you think about it. It's on your mind. It's consciously on, I mean, it's constantly on your mind all the time. You can't not think about it. Because, I mean, her life was taken, and that's horrible. Regardless of what type of guy he was, regardless of that, it's still not my place to take it. But, no, they're, they're, but, but to them, I, I did it on purpose, and I'm, I'm this ruthless killer. And come on, really? Y'all just want to make an example out of three white kids that... In a town where pretty much the whole county jail is number black people and it's racist. I mean, Jefferson County is, at the time, I mean, you got number white judges, white DAs, it's racist. So now they want to send some white kids to jail to make it seem like they're not racist, and they're still racist. You know, I mean, they're still, they're still, still just the way it is. You have one minute remaining. I'm going to call right back whenever this hangs up. But yeah, great. Keep talking. Did you still have some hope that everything would be fine at the end of the day and that, that you would be found obviously not guilty and that this was self-defense? I never thought I was going to prison, not once in my, not, not my wildest dream. Thank you for using Securus. Goodbye. Ah, yes, the US prison phone system. Never be mind, should you be in mid-conversation, we will just cut you off. So that's probably a good place to leave it for today. But coming up in our next episode, we will look into the victim in this case, Jimmy Hill, and find out just what sort of person he really was. I mean, he was a he was a horrible person, evidently. I mean, you know, there's all kind of horror stories this man's got in his closet, and I did not know none of this. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted, and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. <laughs>